Well, good morning again, everyone. Take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Um, I had some people ask, ask me this morning if I was trying to institute a new dress code. Uh, I said, I'm just trying to look more like Rob Malcolm every day. He's kind of my model in life. And so he's been, you know, he's been stepping it up over these past weeks. And so I felt like, no, really, I was just cold, uh, to be honest. It was cold this morning. So I grabbed some as I was headed out the door. Uh, we're doing a series during this time of prayer and fasting called Sacrificial Living. And part of the key of this is the passage in Corinthians that Paul says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. That really the gift that God has given us in his son Jesus should be the example to us about how we're to be a giving people. Uh, that we, we pour out, we give our lives away. Because God has given to us his most precious gift. He didn't just give us something. He didn't just give us a, a nominal token gift. He gave us the gift of his son, his most precious gift. And so we in turn should be a, a, a giving people. So we're talking about what does it mean to live sacrificially in our lives? Because it's really the call. I mean, if you're going to follow Christ, he said, take up your cross daily, I don't know what you think that means, but take up your cross daily and follow me. It can mean a lot of things, but I think it ultimately means we're giving our lives away. We're sacrificing our lives for the sake of God's, God's kingdom. Several years ago, there was a uh, cross-country meet that was run in Riverside, California, and uh, it was a, it was a 10, it, 10K, 6.2 miles, uh, cross-country. Um, it was the National Finals for Division Two, And there was a guy named Mike Del Cavo who was running the race. And they came to a point where the race split. And all these people were going right. And he knew that the course went left. So he started yelling at the people, you're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. And they just kept going. He could only convince five people out of 128 to follow him, to go the course that he knew was the marked course. Now, the course went out. They ran some. They came back together. Isn't it like that sometimes, though, when we've, God has marked a course for us and said, here's the course I want you to run, people? It's a, it's a course of righteousness. It's a course of life. And many times, even in the church, the runners were the already convinced. You know, they're already running. They're already in shape. They're, they're, they're there for the purpose of winning a race, and yet they can't be convinced to go the right way. Now, Paul says this. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. God, God has a race marked out for us. Now you've got the freedom to run any stinking way you want to. You can go run wherever you want to run. I mean, we've got a whole city full of streets, right? You can just go make up your own course. But God has a race for us to run. And that course is marked now, let me finish the story of the cross-country race. As the spirit of the age happens to be, 
I, I think this is very telling. When they got to the end, Del Cavo and his five friends, because they had run further than the other people, actually were much, they were like a hundredth out of 128 because they'd run a shorter race. The race organizers, because so many had run the wrong course, decided to relabel the course. Is that not the spirit of the age? That says the majority is going to determine what is truth. The majority is going to mark the course. And whether it's in God's plan or not God's plan is irrelevant to us. Let's mark a course of what is right. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus um, gathers his followers. I love the way the message talks about the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Matthew 5, it says, Jesus climbed a mountain and his climbing companions climbed with him. And then he sat down to teach them. And he's going to teach them what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, this kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a kingdom citizen? And he starts off by giving the Beatitudes. And in, in the middle, he's really talking about this term righteousness. What does it mean to be right or have right standing before God or to act rightly or to live rightly? And in it, he says it's, it's good if you hunger and thirst for righteousness. He says you will be persecuted because of righteousness. And then he gets to this passage that I'm sure throws his followers for a loop. And he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for his climbing companions who are sitting there with him, suddenly he's got to be, they've got to be thinking, wait a minute. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they're the ones who define righteousness. They're the ones who tell us what is right and what does it mean to have right standing before God. How can our righteousness exceed theirs? And then Jesus launches into a, a teaching that must have you know, I, they, I'm surprised they didn't roll off the mountain because he starts teaching them about sin and basically saying, look, you've heard it's, you're not supposed to commit adultery. But I'm telling you, if you look at a woman and lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. And then murder, you've heard it's not murder, but if you hate your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. I mean, he's ramping up the righteousness character. Wait, wait a minute, you're telling me it's not enough to live right? I have to think right? This is hopeless. This new kind of righteousness about bearing false witness, retaliation, all the things he lists in chapter 5. Then in chapter 6, he gets to the parts where he says, okay, here's the negative. Don't do these things. And if you do these things, now, here are the things that are considered right acts. Praying, fasting, giving. And it's in these religious acts that he starts to teach them what does it mean to do the right things. Not avoid the right things, do what they considered are religious acts that get them 
right before God. So just so we're on the same page, do you understand that really religion is a, in its core, is the idea that you do things in order to get right in God's sight. Do you understand? That to get right before God, you have to do this religious activity. You have to give. You have to pray. You have to confess. You have to go to church. You have to, you have to do these things in order to get right before God. And Jesus is laying out a new kind of righteousness that says this righteousness that we're talking about praying and giving and confessing and, and going to church, those things are only made right because of what Christ has done in relationship with us. They don't make you right. He makes you right. Now you're going to respond in a way that gives God glory. And then in Matthew 6.33, he says, seek first God's kingdom and his what? Righteousness. Everything else will be added unto you as well. I, I want to talk about today sacrificial living, living a sacrificial life takes sacrifice. Because if you're going to seek God's kingdom first, what does that mean? That means there's a lot of other stuff I have to not seek first, right? I mean, inherent in that discussion is if I'm going to go for this, then that means I have to say no to this. I have to say no to a whole bunch of stuff that's pulling on my heart, that's pulling on my life, that's pulling on me to say, seek me, seek me. The enemy is standing before you constantly saying, run this way. Look at all the people running this way. This is a much better way to run. It's shorter. A lot of people are going to be there with you. You know, everybody's going to eventually say it's right if you just listen to them. Live this way. Go the broad way. I find it interesting that we keep naming our it's one of the most common names for streets in our cities. Broadway. Go the Broadway. You've, I haven't seen a, a street hardly ever said narrow way. <laughs> you know, this, this is a street you want to go, the narrow way, the one that not many people travel. He's saying this is the course that I want for your life. And I think that in this there's a, I'm going to use this term a lot this morning, there's a singularity about the kingdom. There's a singleness that, that dictates that we live a sacrificial life, that we live for him by living singularly. And I'm going to focus on just one part of the Sermon on the Mount. I could do a whole bunch of different ones, but I'm going to concentrate, since we're in a time of prayer and fasting, on prayer. What he talks about in chapter 6 about prayer. And I want to give you three points about living a singular, singular life. A life of focus, a life of seeking God's kingdom first. All right? So here's the first point. Seek, pursue a single purpose. Pursue a single purpose. You can answer that if you like. And then everybody else can pull out your phones. You can silence them and then we'll be done with that for the day. <laughs> pursue, pursue a single purpose. Yeah, yeah, I did that. I'm sorry. So... Pursue a single purpose. Back in chapter 6, verses uh, 5 and following, he says, And when you pray, 
Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. What is the, 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 the hypocrites? What are they looking for? What is their purpose in prayer? To be seen by men. That is, their, that is really, they're praying, but they're not praying to be, to be with God, to be in relationship with him, to be heard by him. Their purpose is the praise of men, to be seen by men. He goes on and says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees. He's encouraging you. Don't go for the men who see, go for the Father who sees. It speaks of purpose. And these purposes are are the difference between light and darkness, between life and death. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Isn't this a fascinating passage? (laughs) It it speaks of the purpose of prayer. You're going before the throne, you're asking your Father, but, oh, by the way, He already knows. Then why am I doing this? Why am I going before? If He already knows, what He already giving? Because there's something about seeking after Him that changes you. In your... In your prayer life, it's not like you're trying to manipulate God, he's saying. Your purpose is not to babble and to manipulate God. By the way, there is nothing in the Bible that says the most godly people are the ones with the longest prayers. Amen? I mean, really. It's not the ones who talk the longest. It's not the ones who use the most creative language that's going to move the heart of God. It's the one who is seeking after him with all of their heart. Whose purpose is to to come before him and for him to hear. This purpose is not just seeking after God. It's trying to manipulate God. It's trying to say, if I babble on the longest, then I will manipulate him. Hey, Annalise, would you hand me a Kleenex down there? Caroline stole all the Kleenexes out of the whole sanctuary. And now I don't know. Sorry. My lovely assistant, isn't she beautiful? (laughs) Charles Spurgeon says this, To stand with a penny in one hand and a trumpet in the other is the posture of hypocrisy. And he's talking about this passage where Jesus is going to go on and talk about giving. Because I'm focusing on prayer, but he's going to talk about giving and fasting. But he's saying, look, giving penny... A penny in one hand and holding your trumpet. Look at my penny. It's the posture of hypocrisy. It speaks to our purpose. Why are you here? Why are you here this morning? Why did you come to church? What is your purpose in being here? Well, I had to come. It's Sunday. It's 10 a.m. It's what I do on Sundays at 10 a.m. Or, you know, I feel like it's my obligation to be here. It's my duty. I want to say, look, seeking after God, the purpose of your heart is to be in his presence. 
to be with God's people. It, it will change why you're here. Look, we're, we're in the South. Amen? We know it. Roll Tide. You know, we're in the South, people. We love college football and barbecue. And we know that if you really want to further your business, you need to go to church because that's where you're going to make connections. You think I'm lying. I mean, I know people in other settings who have gone to church because they were told, if you really want to further your business, you need to go to church. And you really need to go to a church that's going to have the same kind of businessmen acumen in your setting. I know a guy one time who joined the Masons because someone told him, if you want to really further your practice, your law practice, you need to join the Masons. That's how we see going to church. That's our purpose. Jesus is saying, this is not the purpose for which God has called you. Romans 8 says this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Not my purpose, his purpose. So some of us, we're, we're trying to work the good and get God to join in on our purpose. And we have a whole even theology that will work this around. Look, I really need money, so... Man, if I'm going to get more money, then i got to give more money. I, I, you understand what I'm saying? I want to be healthy, so i got to do this. I want to be wealthy. I want to be... So I'm going to try and manipulate God into following my purpose, following my line of thinking. God's good is only given to those who are following, I think, his purpose. There's a singularity in seeking the righteousness and kingdom of God that is seeking his purpose, not our purpose. Okay, are we still good? Everybody good? Nobody's mad yet? Just hang on. Expect, expect a single reward. Expect a single reward going on. He's, I, I'm really rereading these passages over and over and just focusing on a couple of words that are highlighted. I want to highlight in this. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. Meaning, everything they're going to get for that prayer is being received. Why were they praying? Why were they praying, church? To be seen for the praise of men. Men see them. They praise them. Congrats, guys. You got your reward. That's it. You got your reward. He goes on and says, but when you pray... Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, for some of us, we get all caught up in, wait a minute. This seems to make the, the faith so mercenary, doesn't it? This whole idea of rewards. And I, I want to say, I'm going to hope point out to you just briefly that no, it's not a bad thing. The Think about the reward. You will receive a reward for everything you do. Some of the things that you're going to receive a reward for, you receive them right now if you do them in the praise of men. If you're doing it with the wrong purpose and in the wrong way, you'll get the immediate reward right now. But if you do it in the right way before God, 
you will receive a reward from him. Now, here's the question, and I think it's an obvious question. Where do you want your reward to come from? You know, I have a, it's not called a 401k. It's like that, though. It's a, it's a retirement fund. I don't know the numbers, but because I'm in the ministry, it's got like, you know, 1502B or something. I, I don't know. It's got numbers on it. But honestly, it's done really well the last two years. I mean, the stock market is, you know, is, has been good. Um, our economy and our country is really good. Now, here's the thing about my 1502B or whatever it is, my retirement fund. I have this money in it. I just can't go get it. Do you understand? I mean, I can't get, hey, that's my money. I want my money. Give me my money now. No, no, no. My investment in this money was with the idea that when I retire, then I'll be able to start collecting this money. There's a return coming, and I'm hoping that when I retire, the stock market keeps going this way, not, you know, this way. Otherwise, I'll still be preaching here when I'm 80. Um, but right now, it's looking healthy. There's no guarantees. What I'm saying is, you'll receive a reward, but it's like, for, for when you pray with the praise of men, it's, it's, it's grabbing your return now. Grabbing your reward now. Rather than what God has for you. And again, I, I could go on about why this reward thing is okay and good, but I can't come close to the way C.S. Lewis puts it in The Weight of Glory. He describes it like this. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. Mary Jo, can you help me? I went to the whole praise service. I'm not sure what happened. See if you can find C.S. Lewis on there anywhere. There you go. Let's start here again. I'm going to go back to the first one. Go back one. We must not, I'm going to read you because it's really, this quote is really good. We must not be troubled by unbelievers when they say that this promise of reward makes the Christian life a mercenary affair. There are different kinds of reward. There is the reward which has no natural connection with the things you do to earn it and is quite foreign to the desires that ought to accompany those things. Money, listen to this, money is not the natural reward of love. That's why we call a man a mercenary if he marries a woman for the sake of her money. But marriage is the proper reward for a real lover, and he is not mercenary for desiring it. The proper rewards are not simply tacked onto the activity for which they are given, but are the activity itself in consumption. Consummation, sorry, consummation. So when it's gathered together, the reward that you receive is the natural response of what you're doing. Do you understand what he's saying? In other words, marriage is the natural reward for love, a healthy, a good marriage, a loving marriage. Prayer gives us a reward that follows after its nature. Its nature is not the praise of men, but a relationship with God. And that's why God calls us to have this heart for a single reward. To understand that you will receive a reward. You can receive it now or then. Okay, 
Moving on. Final point is this. Protect a single heart. Protect a single heart. Back in Matthew, Jesus talks about our heart. He talks about our love. Let's use love as kind of a synonym for our heart. And he says this. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to do what? To pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Where's your heart when you pray? Now, I I know I've talked about purpose, what are you thinking your purpose is. And I've talked about reward, but heart speaks to the affection, that desire that's within you. Where's your heart when you seek after, seek after God? And we are to have this singularity of heart. Why is this such a big deal? Well, it's such a big deal because where your heart goes, it speaks to the treasure of your life. What you really passionately go after. Are you going after God? Are you going after his kingdom? Are you going after his righteousness or something else? At the end of this chapter, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not uh, destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there's your heart. We live in a day with divided hearts. And by the way, a divided heart is not like a 50-50 deal. 50% of my heart goes here and 50%. Listen, Jesus is not asking for 50-50. He's asking for 100% straight out. A 99%, 1% division is still a division. It's still a divided heart. My wife and I... um, in our, off of our bedroom, we have kind of a walk-in closet that goes to the bathroom. And her clothes are on the right. I get this little closet on the left. And then there's this countertop um, across from my little closet, which is about the size of this table, with a mirror in front of it. And on this countertop, I have two things. I have a hairbrush. And some hair gel. Yeah, I use hair gel. Thanks to Molly. She gives it to me. So she gave it to me because it's really nice stuff. Anyway, I have a brush and hair gel. The rest of the, just imagine this whole table right here filled with stuff. Hairbrush, hair gel. I come in the other day. I'm getting out of the shower. I'm looking for my hairbrush and my hair gel. And I'm like, Kathy, where? Where's my hairbrush and hair gel? She said, I put it in a drawer. I'm like, I don't even get a brush and a gel on this whole, this whole countertop. I don't even get that much. It was in the way. <laughs> of what? <laughs> we had this whole discussion. Look, look, I helped pay for this whole counter. I helped pay for all of this. I should get at least a brush and some gel. 
on my table of life. <laughs> you know, we look at Jesus and we say, I should, this little part, I'll give you everything, Jesus, but I'm going to hang on to this little couple of things for myself. I mean, Jesus is saying, no, I want the whole, I want the whole thing. Now, my wife ain't Jesus, but you follow the illustration, right? She's close. She's close, I know, but the point is this. God is looking for the totality of your heart. He wants it all. And you may say, well, that's pretty demanding of him. No, he's saying this is the kind of kingdom living and kingdom life I'm asking of you. I want a singular heart. And what will happen is if you have this whole countertop and you have your brush and your hair gel, your heart is eventually going to go to those things because they're, you think they're yours. They're your right to maintain. They're yours to hang on to. David in the psalm says, Teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will what? Walk in your truth. What does he ask for then? Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart. I will glorify your name forever. The problem with a divided heart is that eventually you'll go to the division no matter how small it is. It'll be what you begin to treasure. It'll begin what you pursue. It'll become the purpose of your life. It'll, it'll start to get the rewards that it's wanted. You'll start to feed it. We need God's presence in our lives to give us this undivided heart. Eldon Trueblood, a pastor of an earlier generation, uh, wrote this commentary on the Ten Commandments, and he talks about seeking, having no other gods, the first commandment. And he has this incredible quote that uh, I've, I've hung on to for years. He says this, the number one differs from all other numbers, not in degree, but in kind. The step from two to three is relatively slight, but the step from one to two is enormous. A man who has two wives and a man who has three wives are in the same class. They're both polygamous. They are both able to divide their deepest affection, but both are totally different from the man who because he cannot divide his affection, is wholly devoted to one wife. We preserve a fundamental insight in our grammar when we make the primary numerical distinction between singular and plural, no matter what the degree of the plurality may be. There is more essential difference between one and two than there is between two and a million. In no realm is the uniqueness of singularity so significant as in our loyalties. Give me an undivided heart. Seek first his kingdom. Go after him totally. In Ecclesiastes, he says, the, Solomon says, Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. And in the NIV, the word duty is kind of in brackets. And my understanding is that really what he's saying, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. This is what makes us whole, seeking him first, keeping him first. My question to you today really is this, where is your heart? 
What are you pursuing after? To live a sacrificial life means I pursue God completely, not divided. How is that going? When the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt, they bring some gods of Egypt with them. You know, they'd been there for hundreds of years. And it seemed like God had been absent, but now God's been working. Now they go into the desert. They don't take the land. They're wandered through for 40 years. Then Joshua leads them over into the promised land. They conquer the land. And in his final speech before the people, that, that great speech that Joshua gives at the end of his life, he says this, Now fear the Lord and serve him with what? All faithfulness. All faithfulness. Throw away the God your forefathers worship beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. Now, see, I can hardly believe that after 40 years, they've still even got him. You know, he's even now having to say 40 years plus now taking the land, however long that was. And now he's saying to him, get rid of him. You've hung on to these stinking gods way too long. Serve God with all faithfulness goes on and says, but if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river, the ones from Egypt and the ones they brought with them, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. So you, you understand, they brought these gods with them from Egypt. Now they're taking the land and there were pagan gods there. Baal, Asherah, all the pagan Canaanite gods that were there. And, and in this day and age, there was a certain mentality like, okay, we, these gods bless this land here. And Joshua was saying, hey, make a choice today, people. Are you going to serve the gods you brought with you? You're going to serve the gods of this land? But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. I'm making a choice this day to serve God. My question to you is this, whom are you pursuing? Whom are you worshiping? Listen, we all have stuff that has given us comfort in the past that we bring with us. We look around us and see the gods of this age that seem to be blessing people around us. And if we're not careful, we'll lean on that or this rather than him. That pull is ever on your heart. It's ever on all of us. But I want to encourage you day by day, and I think this is a daily taking up your cross and following him aspect. Choose every day to follow him wholeheartedly. The nation of Israel goes on after Joshua dies, and they go through a period, many, many years. I can't remember the exact time, but they never make the choice. They keep trying to choose. They keep trying to worship the God of the land and worship God syncretistic in their religion, blending of pagan and godly. Elijah has enough. He calls the people together and says, all right, we're going to settle it today on this mountain. All the prophets of Baal, you guys come out, do all your work, see if you can get your God to call down fire. Elijah stands there, calls down fire that consumes the altar and he basically says to the people this, how long? It's been hundreds of years. 
and you're still here. How long are you going to waver between these two opinions? How long? People of fullness, I want to encourage you because I, I know my own heart. I know the struggle, the pull, the desire, you know, materialism and everything else in our age that tries to pull at our hearts on a consistent basis, tries to divide our hearts from pursuing God's kingdom and his righteousness first. And I believe that by his grace, there is a call on our hearts where we can choose for ourselves this day whom you're going to serve. You're going to leave this place in a minute. You're going to go out. You're going to run your race. Are you going to run the race that God has marked out for you? To pursue his kingdom and his righteousness, are you going to run your own race? He gives you that freedom to run the race in a certain way. But God's kingdom calls for us to follow after him. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives these final words where he says, Hey, the the foolish man is the one who does what? Hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. The wise man is the one who builds his house on the rock. What is the rock? Now, you want to say Jesus, right? Jesus is the rock. Well, Jesus is the rock. But he said the rock, in this case, is hearing my words and putting them into practice. The rock is not just a faith system even. It's a faith system that results in putting into practice the words of Jesus. Now, I know we live in this constant tension between legalism, like I got to do something, and is it all about grace or faith? And the answer is drop legalism. Go with faith and grace. But let me tell you that faith without works is it's dead. It, it shows you don't really got it. Choose you this day whom you will serve, pursue God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then everything else will be added unto you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, people. Seek first. Choose. Choose to say, I'm going to hear the words of Jesus. I'm going to put them in. I'm going to run the race he has for me. It's a matter of life and death. It'll change everything for each and every one of us. Lord, today, we pray that we will be a people who choose to run the race that you have marked out for us. We pray that it will be life for us. Lord, there's some people here today who are in, the, who are, who are in a struggle of, of choice-making, their hearts, if they, were had, if they had to be honest, are divided. Some things that have caused this division are actually good things. Family, relationships, job, church, people. Some are not so good. But Lord, I pray that in all that we do, that which we put aside and that which we pick up, that it'll be done 
by your grace for your kingdom's sake, pursuing your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, may our hearts be one with your heart today. For those of might be here today who don't know Jesus as the one who rules their life and forgives their sins. I pray that Holy Spirit, you draw them to the name of Jesus across this place right now. Lord, for those who are followers of Jesus, Lord, just show us, shine your light into the areas of our heart where we're deceived and we're just hanging on to certain things for ourselves. God, we thank you for your grace and your life Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are continuing to have our morning times of prayer at 6 a.m. We have three more. So if you haven't been to any of them, but you want to come, or you feel led to come, or um, I won't guilt you into coming, uh, but um, we'd love to have you. 6 a.m. in the youth room. Tennis has been great. There's still a prayer card in your bulletin. Uh, we've been praying over these prayer cards every morning. So if you haven't had opportunity to put something on a prayer card and um, turn it in and have prayer, or if you've got another prayer request that you didn't put in the weeks past, you can just put your name on this prayer card, put it in the offering when it's passed in just a moment, 